Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 40, and we're dealing with the Second Frontier War. The Zuurveld Boers were indignant at the reluctance of the distant government of the Cape to come to their aid as that Makunukwebe swept onto their farms. Remember, Kosa King in Tlambi was trying to bring them to heel and had ordered the Amakunukwebe and Langas Amambalu to move westwards across the Fish River back to him. Instead, the Amakunukwebe headed in the opposite direction just to get away from the Kosa King's warriors. Grafrenet's new Landrost, Honoratus Mainier, was prompted to act. He was well educated and fluent in several languages and was highly aware of the suffering and injustice that had been meted out to the San and the Khoi in particular. Much has been written about Mania over the years, mostly bad. However, he was probably ahead of his time in quite a few areas, specifically human rights. This, of course, did not endear him to the Trekpurs, and yet they were forced to seek his help. He had only just taken over as Landros in April 1793, and he faced a baptism of fire. The Dutch East India's basic policy on its forward-shifting frontiers had not changed in a century. No trade was supposed to be taking place between the Kosa and the Trekpurs, but it had failed to enforce this rule even under threat of banishment or death. Meinier was driven to try and bring law and order to the frontier. As he wrote, The positive orders of government were not to attack the Kosa, but to promote peace and tranquility between them and the inhabitants by mild and gentle means, and to protect the Hottentots against the oppressions and violence which they continually suffered from the Boers. This kind of sentiment did not sit well with Field Cornet Lindicu. Thus, Mania became the first verified authentic villain of conservative South African history. Colonial historian Teal wrote of how his appointment was one of the most injudicious ever made in South Africa, for no one could have been more out of sympathy with the colonists than Mania. This Landros deserves some attention, as historian Noel Mostad writes. He marks the beginning of the moral debate about relations between whites and blacks in South Africa, and within a decade this moral debate would begin to circulate further afield. Mania tried to administer the frontier through humanitarian principles and he was vilified for it. But he was no wilting liberal flower. He wrote of the wicked and ruinous enterprises of the ever-predatory Bushmen, for example, and he knew his job was to try and put a stop to their attacks. He was also trying to calm the settlers down, but it was all in vain. Shortly after he arrived, the Second Frontier War broke out. Mainier understood that the Boers' propensity to fight both the San and the Amakosa was not wise. It was a war on two fronts. At that stage, the Trek Boers regarded the San as invincible despite their diminutive size and relatively low numbers on the felt, and the Brankies Huchte settlers had been pleading for more commandos to sort out the San. But of course, Mainier had no commander himself, only four policemen. In the Cape, the Dutch East India Company was also unable to assist. You see, it was falling apart at that stage. The VOC empire around the world was collapsing. Mainier was alarmed by what he saw at the frontier when he arrived at the half a dozen mud buildings called Graaf Renet in 1793. Drought had reduced the Boers and Kosa to extreme hardship and aggravated tension between these two people. The Kosa were prodded by destitution and internal squabbles as well as squabbles with the Trek Boers. Cattle rustling was a local pastime, and the Kosa also took to killing Khoi's servants when they made off with these animals. Mainier set up small patrols of young Boers in an attempt at controlling the situation, but 
found these men were mainly interested in raiding the Koza themselves. That alarmed Manier still further because he realized that violence was begetting violence. The Trekboers were trying to convince him to mobilize forces to fight the Amakono Kwebe, and he was resisting, in addition to being highly skeptical of most reports he heard about the theft and losses. Manier kept telling the farmers who visited his drosty mud and daub building in Krafrenet that it was inadvisable to oppose force by force, it would merely bring the closer down on the farms. So, Field Cornet Barand Linduku decided to take action himself and put together a commando without the VOC or Mania's permission. Linduku then approached Koza Chief and Tlambe and suggested they work together to rid the Zierfeld of the Amakono Kwebe. Of course, the Koza King was only too happy to work with the Trekpurs, it served his interests. So the deal was struck, and on the 18th of May, 1793, the first action of what was to become known as the Second Frontier War was recorded. Ntlambe's forces duly arrived at a selected spot to be joined by Lindeku's commando. The incident was going to be an attack on the Amakunukwebe living around the Bushman's River near what is now Kenton-on-Sea, and the Trekboers and Kloster then made off with 1,800 head of cattle. However, what began in small victories was going to become one of the most farcical occasions in South African colonial history so far. As you can imagine, these two forces, one composed of Trek Boers and their Khoi servants, and the other, the Amakosa, were uneasy as they regarded each other. While allies, there was much tension. This was the first time that a large armed group of settlers in South Africa came face to face with a considerably larger force of African warriors in fighting dress and temper. Lindeku and his men began to get cold feet about the whole idea. Here were hundreds of Koza warriors raiding about the Zurfeld, ostensibly targeting the Amambalu and the Amakonukwebe, but the sight shocked the Trekpurs. They'd never seen a proper Amakosa war party in massed battle formation, and the sight apparently terrified them. The Koza men would daub themselves with red clay, and with the leaders adorned with blue crane feathers, they would draw up in large groups to stamp and chant themselves into a pitch of excitement in anticipation for battle. The sheer size of Ntlambi's army shocked the settlers, now fearing for themselves. They immediately regretted the pact with the Koza king, and so their alliance suffered a sudden collapse. The Boers of the Zurfeld then packed up their wagons and fled. The Amakunukwebe and Amambalu seized the opportunity to settle a score with the Trek Boers and proceeded to burn down 116 of the Boers' 120 homesteads and drove off around 50,000 cattle, 11,000 sheep and 200 horses. Most of the Boers abandoned the Zurfeld entirely, but not all made it out immediately. Those who didn't sort security in wagon lagers cut off by the war parties of the Amakunukwebe and the Amambalu. These fortified camps were mobile and indispensable for Trekboer survival on the felt when under attack. The wagons were drawn into a circle or sometimes a triangle or whatever shape the terrain allowed and took advantage of the natural features to add to their protection. They would be lashed together end to end with the shaft of each wagon fitting under the chassis of the next. Then branches from thorn trees were cut and stuffed in the gaps in the wheels and between the wagons. Oxkins were stretched over the spoked wheels and non-combatants and draft oxen, horses and other livestock sheltered inside the lager during the attack. Sometimes four wagons were parked in a square inside the lager 
and roofed over with planks or rawhides to protect the women, children and the elderly. Each trek boer would take up position between the wagons and then they fired in an ordered rotation to create an uninterrupted rate of fire. These lagers could hold off far larger groups of attackers and would be used for many more years of fighting on the felt, as you're going to hear. While none of the lagers in this situation were attacked in the Zurfeld, it did buy the Trekboer's time. Eventually, the local authorities were alerted to the perilous situation and the colonists' plight. As the Trekboer's emptied the Zurfeld, Ntlambi took note of their rather pathetic response to his massive army, their apparent terror. The Klauser chief decided to head back westwards across the Fish River to reconsider his strategy. The farcical position of the Trekboer's was followed by irony as their farms were now destroyed by the very people they were trying to destroy. But as we'll hear, everyone would turn out to be losers in the Second Frontier War. It was brief and inconclusive. Langa of the Mbalu and Chaka of the Kunukwebe laid waste to the Zurfeld, and the rebel giant Kunrad the base felt the pain most. Langa blamed him personally for the war, as Willem Prinsler had been personally blamed for the First War. Langa and Chaka were also to become victims because Meinier Beckengraf Reinet was forced to take action. First, he tried to conciliate the Zürfeld Amatkosa. After a futile first round of negotiations with the Amatkonukwebe and the Amambalu, Meinier reluctantly accepted that nothing except the use of force would be the answer. He raised a commando which was in the field by the 27th of August, 1793. Its objective was to expel all the Amatkosa from the Zürfeld and to seize all their cattle in compensation for the destruction they had sown. However, the Trekboers that Manier led were even more angry at the Landrost than the Amatkunukwebe. At one point, as Manier and the Boers rode together on commando, the Trekboers had turned up at Manier's tent and demanded that he relinquish control to a leader of the Boer militia. Manier realized, as he wrote later, that his approach was actually cramping their style. They were unable to perpetrate what he called their usual cruelties against the Kosa nation. There would be no ethnic cleansing while he was in charge. He refused to stand down, but resentment grew as the commando operations continued. The Amakonukwebe fell back before Mania's commando across the Great Fish River. They intended to make it all the way beyond the Kai, where they hoped to find sanctuary amongst the Amatraleka of the Kosa paramount Kawuta, who was not a friend of the Tlambes nor the Boers. But the commander caught up with them near the Buffalo River, deep in Amatkoseni between the Kaiskama and Kai rivers. The Amatkodukwebe then lost most of their cattle, around 8,000 head, and many women and children were seized as captives. To make matters worse, Nslambe then gleefully joined in, attacking the retreating Amakunukwebe survivors and eventually killing their chief Chaka at the Cholomkak River. Nslambe didn't stop there. He went on to attack his previous allies, the Amambalu, and captured their aging but highly respected chief Langa. Nslambe decided to offer Mania Langa as a kind of VIP prisoner to show off, but the Landrost refused. Mainier didn't want to hold the old warrior in jail, and so Ntlambe paraded him at his great place instead. Langa died soon afterwards, a proud man who was driven to death after the dishonor of defeat. If Lindeku and the other Trekboers believed that Kose and the Zufeld were totally defeated, they were sorely mistaken. Mainier had warned the settlers of this, reminding them that the deep ravines and bushy terrain 
meant that the Khosa could hide out there and would never be defeated or dislodged without a significantly larger, properly trained Dutch army. This, of course, did not exist anywhere in South Africa at the time. Meinier also knew that the Zurfeld Boers and the Brankies Hoogte Boers didn't get along, so there was no chance of convincing the two different groups of settlers to fight together. It had been difficult and sometimes impossible to raise commanders against the San who were causing havoc in the highlands. Years before, Traveller Lavalant had written that he had doubts about the Boers' stamina in the field, and now Meinier agreed. As the exasperated Landrost wrote later, The Boers may have high notions of the commandos. I have attended many of them, and I have always found that when there was not a considerable number of Hottentots with them to be placed in front and the first exposed to danger, they never succeeded. The Trek Boers did not speak highly of him either, as the tent event proved. He also observed that the longer the makeshift campaigns against the sand continued, the more invincible they became, and he feared the same results in any extended war with the Tosa. So the Second Frontier War sputtered to an end, but that was not the end of the matter. Some of the Amakonukwebe under Chakas E Chungwa doubled back to the Zurfeld and regained old territory between the Great Fish River and the Kawi River. Nkeno, who was Langa's son, took over the reins of the Amambalu and then led remnants of his followers back into the Zufeld. Both Koza tribes refused to give up their cattle captured from the Zufeld Boers, and by November 1793, commando operations were being wound down. Maniard had arranged a peace which the Trek Boers, including Kunrad the base, considered premature. He and the others wanted to hammer the Zufeld Koza until they were pounded to dust and their cattle seized. The problem for the Trek Boers was that Mainier controlled their access to gunpowder and lead. There would be no bullets for the base, and the Landros had the power to refuse or limit armed sorties. While all of this was going on in Graf Reinet, Mainier was trying to protect Khoi servants from the Boers. During the closer campaigns, the Khoi had been important and loyal fighters like they had during the campaigns against the Sam. But the steady defection of bitter, vengeful and armed Khoikhoi to the Khoza from the Boers had made Mainier conscious of the possibility of adding more fuel to the fire burning between the colonists and the indigenous people. The Trek Boers were incensed when Mainier ordered that a portion of the cattle seized from the Kunukwebe and Mbalu should be handed over to the Khoi members of the commando. The Trek Boers pointed out that they were still owed cattle by the Khoza. Hatred for Mania grew amongst the Trek Boers, along with contempt for the Dutch East India Company. They wanted more commandos to be sent to teach the Tosa a lesson. It was now time for these bitter men of the frontier to take their next steps and therefore set up the South African frontier for even more dreadful moments. The Second Frontier War had drifted to a close, with many Tosa still living on the Zirfeld to the west of Van Blettenberg's Great Fish River boundary line. Worse, Damatkosa had many thousand Boer cattle in their hands still. The war had proven that the Boers of the southeastern divisions of the Grafrenet district lacked the manpower to overcome the Amakosa. This situation was exacerbated by the fact that only a third of the Trek Boer families that had fled the Zurfeld in 1793 returned. So the local Trek Boers were fighting the San, the Amakosa, and now their own Landrost. Ntlambe had also continued to lay claim to the Makosa west of the Fish River, while the atrocities committed during the Second Frontier War had fueled an atmosphere that was deep in bitterness and irreconcilable hatred. It all revolved around the land and those who claimed it. 
Early in 1795, Adrian van der Asfeld, that trek boer who used tobacco to trick the sand and Amatosa, arrived in Graaf Reinet with a message signed by 40 local farmers. One of these was the giant Kunrad the base, along with the Prinzlers and the Besaidenots. They demanded a meeting, which was duly held on the 6th of February, 1795. After reading Mainier a list of grievances against him, these trek boers ordered him to leave the frontier immediately. But first, they demanded something that was intrinsically more wicked, more shocking. They demanded that the Khoi in his service be handed over to them, including one who'd sought Mania's protection against outrageous ill-treatment. These Khoi were severely thrashed by the Besaidnote family, and the man who'd claimed maltreatment then simply disappeared, presumed murdered. The Besaidnote family had had their revenge, but as we know, when you seek revenge, you always dig two graves. These rebels had heard a great deal about the American War of Independence and the French Revolution. They even deployed the rhetoric of the people and called their new administration the National Convention and supported the revolutionary red, white and blue tricolor cockade. They denounced what they called the bureaucratic aristocrats of the VOC. Such was the anarchy that prevailed. Maynard had no option but to leave as there was no help from any quarter. And that was because the VOC had finally shot its bolt. It was finished across the world, while in the Cape, the government had run out of money. A different sort of anarchy now prevailed in Cape Town since the VOC there had retrenched about half of its officials. Fortified posts were shut, military posts abandoned. Most of the German and Swiss mercenaries who composed the main body of its professional military force then sailed away. Corruption had finally led to a failed system, combined with stifling taxes, which were misspent as they were collected. Sounds quite modern. The colonists saw the decline and decay, and our contempt for the government and law was all-consuming. At the same time, the Netherlands was in decline and decay. It had fallen far from its golden age of commercial and maritime supremacy. The citizens of Holland were divided between the patriotic party favouring revolution and the Orangists who supported the Prince of Orange. As we've heard, the Cape had produced its own patriotic party along the lines of the American patriots, and these men included De Base and the Trekboers, who regarded the settlers of America as an example worthy of consideration. The big problem is they were not interested in liberty defined by Thomas Paine, they were more interested in the liberty defined by Adam Smith. They were individuals who cared little about the lofty goals of an advanced society. Meanwhile, a war had broken out between France and her neighbours, Holland was drawn into the fracas. France had declared war on both Holland and Britain in early 1793, and for the next two years, Holland had struggled to cope with its own small war in the South African eastern frontier and the larger war. This wave of revolution broke out in June 1795 in Swellendam, a village of 30 houses. The settlers there drove out their landros too and set up a national convention, but their aims were purely greed and revenge. Despite the fashionable outfits, the berets and cockades, what they really wanted was to recapture the cattle lost to the Amakosa and to drive the Amakosa out of the Zurfeld once and for all. The irony for these few men is that they continued stressing their desire to remain loyal subjects of the Dutch government, which was in a situation of failure. You see, the government they supported no longer existed. Revolutionary France had been at war with the Netherlands since early 1793, and in December 1794, the French army overran the Dutch. 
They took advantage of the frozen canals to seize the icebound Dutch fleet, and William V, the Prince of Orange, then fled to England. The Batavian Republic was proclaimed in January 1795 as a sister republic of France, which promptly concluded an alliance with France aimed at Great Britain. So who exactly did these Graaf Reynet and Swellendam rebels support? Back in Cape Town, people waited anxiously and impatiently for the tidings of their own fate as they watched each inbound ship come slowly over the horizon and anchor. What was the latest news? Of course, it wasn't the latest news. It was usually four to six months old, and the residents of Cape Town were highly aware that the information they received had been superseded by other happenings, possibly apocalyptic. There were two other events of 1795 that were to throw the frontier into further instability. And Tlambe of the Amaklosa was now the most powerful Klosa chief in the West, but he could not capitalize on his success. Remember that Tlambe was actually acting regent for the young man Nguinka until he turned 17. While his uncle had installed him formally as chief, Tlambe actually retained the reins of power in his own hands. But Tlambe had made one fatal mistake. He'd underestimated his nephew. Nika was described as handsome and elegant and gifted with great intelligence. However, he was also flawed. Nika was a spoilt brat who had now been circumcised and was ready to rule. His ambition and ruthlessness matched his attributes, and the youngster was determined to exercise full power himself and overthrow Nklambe. Next episode, we'll take a look at this change in Koza leadership and international effects on South Africa as the English decided it was time to invade the Cape. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps to increase the visibility of the show. If you have any comments, you can send these through my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.